John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Let's hear the word of God together. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is the words of God. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the word. Lord, we know that uh, all of us face all kinds of messages. Uh, We face all kinds of difficult circumstances. Lord, we know um, that we come into your church this morning um, coming from all different places and spaces. But Lord, we say with your disciples that you, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. And where else would we go? Where else would we go this morning but to you, Jesus, the word, the one who has the words of eternal life? Jesus, I ask this morning that that you would help us by the power of your spirit to hear your word as living and active and as eternally significant for us. Lord, may we not just come and do church and get a couple uh, points that just help me with my life. I ask that we would behold the word of God this morning who is Jesus. I ask that we would see the glory of Jesus this morning, that we would worship this morning, that our concerns would be lifted higher than ourselves, and that we would behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We were created by you and for you, Jesus. And so right now, would we take this time to behold you, the word of God? Would we hear from you? Would you shape us and change us and save some of us and encourage some of us and call some of us out of sin and back into life as you, Jesus, speak to your people? God, help me just be faithful to communicate only what you have laid out in your word. The unfolding of your words gives light. So give us light and understanding this morning. And above all, would we worship Christ? And it is in that name we pray. Amen. Well, one of my favorite places on the earth is the Eastern Sierras in California. If you've ever driven up there, you drive up the 395 uh, to your right is the lowest place on our continent, Death Valley. And to, our le- to your left is the highest point, Mount Whitney, on our, uh, in our 48 states. And, and as you drive, you know, it's valley after valley. There's just, if, if you were to explore any one of these valleys, you would go further in and you would find waterfalls and streams and lakes and meadows. And that's just valley after valley after valley after valley. And I say that because right now as a church, we stand together at the feet of this glorious mountain, the Gospel of John. It is, it is a masterpiece. There are seven I am statements of who Jesus is. There's imagery in this book, unlike any other book of the Bible, of light and darkness and life and death and above and below and truth and lie and sight and blindness. The book of John is 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 radically different than the other three gospels that give us the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in the book of John, we don't have any birth narrative. We don't have any parables. Jesus doesn't institute the Lord's Supper. We don't see casting out demons. There's no uh, talk of the, the so common kingdom of God. There's none of that in the book of John. But in the book of John, it includes so much that we would not know of Jesus otherwise. The story of the water to wine of Nicodemus and John 3.16, for God so loved the world. The story of the woman at the well, the raising of Lazarus, Jesus teaching that I'm the good shepherd and I'm the true vine and so much more. Uh, John Calvin said of the gospel of John that the first three gospels show Jesus' body, but the book of John shows his soul. Oof. 
So good. Uh, Martin Luther said, this is even more dramatic, if a tyrant could come and take every Bible from every Christian and all that remained was the gospel of John and Romans, Christianity would be saved. That's so good. Um, Above all, John's desire is to give us a lifelong feast of the glory and majesty of Jesus. Time and time again, people in this gospel experience Jesus, and they're really impressed by him, and yet they are impressed by these tiny, small, minuscule attributes of Jesus, and time and time again, they find that Jesus is far greater than anything they could have imagined. From chapter 1, Nathaniel, one of the disciples, meets Jesus, and Jesus tells him, hey, before you knew we had this conversation, I saw you were sitting under a fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, you're a prophet. How did you know I was sitting under a fig tree? And Jesus is like, Nathaniel, if you're impressed by that fact, there is so much more to come. Um, We see Jesus uh, providing bread, feeding the 5,000. And people are like, oh my gosh, he's a miracle worker. And they come to him and they're amazed at him. And Jesus says, you just, you just want, you're impressed with me because I gave you bread. I am the true bread, the true manna come down from heaven. And if you eat of me, you will never be hungry again. You have no idea how amazing I am. He tells the woman at the well, They're talking about water, and he says, if you drink the water I give you, you will never thirst again. Uh, In in the Chronicles of Narnia, if you know that story of the children going to this other land, and they meet Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus, and Lucy um, goes back in another book, and she meets Aslan again, and the first thing she says to him is, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, that is because you're older, child. And she's like, so you're not bigger? And he says, every year you grow, you will see me for more of who I am. I will become bigger and bigger to you. Like exploring the Sierras, the further you go, the more glory awaits around every corner. And you guys, so is Jesus. The more you sit at his feet, the more you read of him in this gospel, you will be surprised again and again and again that he is far more than anything you ever thought you knew about him. So we're going to cover the first three verses this morning. Uh, Turn your eyes to that first verse there. And now these first 18 verses are known as the prologue. Uh, It's not like an introduction so much. It's not a preface. Uh, Really what these 18 verses are is if, if you just take all that we just heard about the gospel of John and you distilled it into 18 verses, that's what, the, that's what the prologue is. It is the whole book of John. All the themes and truths of the book of John are condensated into these 18 verses. Uh, if, if we haven't hyped the book of John enough, one theologian said of the prologue, of all that has been written by the instruments of inspiration, meaning scripture, this prologue stands out as the one paragraph that is most profound, most lofty, and incomparable in every way. I'm going to confess to you guys, like, it's, it is a joke for a human being to stand here and explain the glories in this chapter. It's, it's a joke. But, uh, That's what we're supposed to do together. We are to grapple with the word. And so we will do our best for a few minutes to look into the word of God and grab a few things about Jesus together. We're going to read these three verses and we're going to learn three truths about Jesus together. Uh, The first thing we will see together about Jesus is this. Jesus is the creator of the universe. He's the creator of all things. All that there is was created by Jesus. Now, now we see that in a few places. Number one, it, the, the, the verse begins like this, in the beginning. Does that ring a bell to anyone? What does that sound like? Well, it sounds like Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. I think we actually have that there. And then verse three, and this is significant. How did God create everything? And God, what's the word? Said, let there be light. And there was light. Do you know the way God accomplishes things? He speaks and they happen. God's word is so powerful that when he speaks, universes are created. Now, we understand that from Genesis, but what John is doing is saying in the beginning was the word. Now, the word, we're like, what is, is he just referring to God's speech? What is he getting at? If, if you look down to verse 14, what is this word? Who is this word? It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Who is the word? Jesus is the word. Who created all things? Jesus created all things. And now uh, I want us to look at verse three together. It clarifies this idea. All things were made through him. And in case you're like, yeah, well, did he really create all things? John says it again. And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus created all things. I want to look at a couple more verses. Look at Hebrews chapter one, verse two together. In these last days, he has, that's the father, has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the, wor- the world. And then look at Colossians chapter one. We've been reading this verse a lot the past few weeks. For it's referring to Jesus. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, Jesus, all things hold together. You guys, how small a view do we often have of the man Jesus? He didn't begin to exist 2,000 years ago as a baby in Bethlehem. He was the one who created Bethlehem. That's the view of Jesus John wants us to have. Everything that exists, exists because of Jesus. And uh, let me just say this as well. Jesus didn't just create all things. He is sustaining all things. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter one, verse three, the very next verse. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The, The planet earth right now is being suspended in space by the word of Jesus. And if Jesus were to say, all right, that's it, we would collapse. And that's actually what happens if you read the end of the story. Right now, we are being sustained by the creator who is Christ. Now, this is literally infinitely rich. Uh, And I just want us to draw out one practical thing. Uh, What does this mean for us as the church? Because Jesus is the creator of all things. You can go to him for guidance in all things. No one knows the way that life should work and relationships should work and love and work and recreation and art and the purpose of why we're here better than the creator of it all. If you wanna know how something works, you go to the guy or to the woman who made the thing. No one knows better than the one who made it. Uh, If you know Henry Ford, he's essentially invented the most popular form of the car. He uh, also made famous the uh, assembly line. And he had a mechanical genius named Charles Steinmetz design the assembly line. And, you know, one day he's just pumping out cars and the assembly line breaks and the whole production stops. And Henry Ford was a shrewd guy. And he was like, you know, let's just call some regular mechanics and let's see if they can get this thing working. And the amount of money he was losing day after day, nobody could figure it out. And he's like, all right, call Charles. So Charles comes in there and he literally tinkers for a few minutes, fixes it, is out of there. It's working. And uh, the the next day or so, Henry gets a a bill from Charles for $10,000, which at that time was 
a lot of money. And uh, Henry says, Charles, don't you think that's a bit much for a few minutes of tinkering? And Charles returns with the note, tinkering, $10, knowing where to tinker, $9,990. He's like, I made the thing. You're paying me because I'm a genius and I know how to fix it. It doesn't matter if it takes me a few minutes. I'm the one who made it. Church, Jesus knows just where we need tinkering. We can go tinker with our lives and go to all these other people to fix this and fix that and help us with this and help us with that. But Jesus is the creator of all things. Why? He has the words of eternal life. Why would we not go to him as our creator, as our maker, we must go to him, church, for, for everything. How, what does a church look like? What does a marriage look like? What does a single life look like? What does my job look like? What does worship look like? What does mission look like? Go to Jesus, the creator of all things. And let me say this, as it says in verse three, there is not one thing that exists in your life that Jesus didn't make. He made everything. Well, what about fly fishing, Bo? Does Jesus really know about fly fishing? Let me just suggest he made the fish. I'm not saying you, I'm, I mean, I don't really know, but what my point is this. He knows more about everything than anyone. Why would we sell ourselves short with these, trying to pay off these cheap mechanics to fix up any area of our life without looking to Christ? The, the Bible says that in this book, in Jesus' word to us, we have all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Why would we go to someone else. Jesus is the creator of all things. Second thing we see in these three verses is this. Jesus is God's final word. Jesus is God's final word. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I want to be gentle here. Um, We spend a lot of time asking for God to speak to us And let me suggest to you the first place you should go is to the word of God to look at Jesus. Let me just suggest to you that Jesus is God's final word to you. In fact, this isn't in my notes, but could we get uh, Hebrews chapter one, the one through three up now? Let's look at that now. This is is, uh, the way the book of Hebrews begins. I think it's in a few slides, Reynolds. And then, do we have verse one through three? I think it's coming. It's after all those other bullet points. There we go. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed as the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Church, let me suggest to you, if Jesus isn't enough for you, nothing will be enough for you. Jesus is God's final word to you. Um, we see it in the text here. In the beginning was the word, the word. That's a a strange way to describe a person, isn't it? The word, why would he say the word? Uh, But it's not that strange when we think about how do we reveal ourselves, ourselves to others? How do we reveal our heart? How do we reveal our passions? How do we reveal what's important to us? Jesus himself said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to know the heart of God, look to Jesus. Uh, One theologian put it this way, Jesus is what the Father has to say. Jesus is what the Father has to say. Furthermore, um, Jesus himself tells us that God's word, the Bible, the scriptures are actually all about him. Uh, In John chapter five, verse 39, Jesus is talking to these Bible nerds who knew the Bible, but missed the point, which was Jesus. Look what he says. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. The Bible is about Jesus. 
And look at even how the word of God itself testifies to Jesus. Just one verse, Psalm 107, verse 20. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Church, God's word is how he creates, reveals himself, heals, and delivers people. We see just a general concept of the word of God in the Old Testament that heals people and delivers people and rescues people. And then when John chapter one comes along, he's saying all of that was really just Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. And, and not only is just that general idea, you know, words are how we speak and reveal ourselves and the whole Bible is about Jesus. Jesus throughout the book of John over and over again shows, look at how I'm the fulfillment of the word the Bible, we, we see in chapter one, verse 14, Jesus is the true tabernacle. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the same word for tabernacle. We see Jesus is the true Passover lamb. We see Jesus is the true ladder of Jacob connecting heaven and earth. We see Jesus is the temple of God. This is all just in the book of John. We see Jesus is the healing serpent who's lifted up in the wilderness that if any would look upon him, they would be healed and saved. We see Jesus is the true manna from heaven. We see Jesus is better than Abraham. He's the true shepherd, the true vine, the true high priest. Jesus fulfills all that the word of God teaches us. He, it's, it's, it's climax, the pinnacle is in the person of Jesus. And not only that, not only does every page of your Bible reveal Jesus, the person, Jesus himself, shows us what God is like. Um, it's a common misunderstanding to think that the words of Jesus are somehow more important than the rest of the word of God. Uh, That's a misunderstanding because the person of Jesus is the word of God. Everything he did reveals who God is like, which is why we need the rest of the New Testament because it so gloriously by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit explains to us who this person is and was and what he did. That's why we look at Hebrews chapter one. God spoke by his prophets, but now the person of Jesus is the way God reveals himself. And let me just say this. So often we can approach Christianity like this. It's salvation by knowledge of Jesus. Salvation by words. It's salvation by understanding. Listen, Jesus doesn't just teach us and show us. He is the word in the sense that he made a way for you to, God, to experience God. It wouldn't matter if God revealed himself. Our hearts are so darkened and so rebellious towards God, there would be no hope for us. But Jesus, as the true word, made a way for humanity to know God. He, on the cross, took the wrath of God for our sin and then rose again. And so if we hear the gospel, the eyes of our heart are opened. The blindness of our heart is open. Listen, you can hand the Bible to someone who doesn't believe and they may still not believe because their eyes are blinded. But Jesus, as he tore the veil in the temple, tears through the veils of our own spiritual blindness and exposes us to the glory of God. Jesus doesn't just teach us about God. His word does doesn't just teach us about Jesus. Jesus is the word in that he brings us to God. He reveals to us on a supernatural level, this is who God is. And you can approach him because I, the word, made a way for you on the cross. So yes, the Bible's about Jesus. And yes, we can look to the life of Jesus and understand what he's like. But the person and work of Jesus is the final word of God to us. I love you even though you have sinned and I have made a way for you to come to me. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, the word, the word of God. And let me just suggest to you, if you long uh, to know the love of God, if you long to taste the love of God, go behold Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away every sin and leads you to the heart of God himself.
Jesus is the word. The third thing we see in this text is this. Not only is Jesus the creator, not only is Jesus the word, we see Jesus is God. So we see Jesus is God. Uh, Let's again look at verses one and two. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Uh, You know, when you think about Jesus, what's the first kind of like image or idea that comes to your mind? What is it? Is it, you know, one of those pictures of, you know, like glowing Jesus on like your grandmother's wall? Is it uh, maybe a crucifix or him on the cross? Is it maybe like a scene out of a children's Bible? Like what comes to your mind? John begins his gospel making this one clear point to us, that he is no ordinary or even extraordinary man. He is God. Jesus is God. Matthew and Luke begin their account of Jesus with a genealogy, uh, wanting us to see the connection with the Old Testament. And, And then they go on to tell us the story of his birth. Mark begins his account of Jesus with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. And John comes along and says, let me take you back further. Let me take you back before the beginning. And turns out Jesus is still there because Jesus is God. You know, he makes this wordplay, in the beginning, a Jewish ear would expect to hear God. In the beginning, God, Genesis 1.1. What John is saying is in the beginning was the word. And immediately the Jewish ear is saying, what? what is, what's he saying? He places Jesus where we'd expect to find God. In the beginning was the word. And that's exactly his point. More than any other gospel or even arguably book of the Bible, the gospel of John wants us to know from the beginning who it is Jesus is. He is God. Now, uh, we're going to see the tension that comes throughout this whole book because time and time again, Jesus himself equates himself with God and the Jews essentially kill him for that reason. Who are you to save, to make yourself God? And, and I even want us to notice a couple more things of the language in this verse. It's, it's crucial. Every Every word in these verses is packed with theology. Uh, I want you to notice two words here. In the beginning, and then the next one to notice is the word was. Beginning and was. Jesus was before all else was. Uh, One church father, Basil, what a name, said these words, said the words beginning and was are like two anchors which the ship of one's soul may safely ride, whatever storms they may face. Before the beginning, Jesus was. He is eternal. He is forever. Jesus is God, unshakable, a rock, a refuge. Before there were storms, Jesus was. Before there was sin, Jesus was was. Before there was uncertainty, Jesus was. He simply was. It's this connection to this Old Testament uh, concept of I am Yahweh. I simply am. And so we see that he was God, but then also we see this mind-bending concept when he says, and the, the word was with God, so, so the word was with God. Now that word with in Greek is the word pros, which means to or toward. And it's used uh, between people. It's not used between objects. Like this thing was with this thing. It's always used between people. And so what we read here is the word was with, in a personal way, God. And so what we begin to see in these, this very first verse 
is this theological mystery known as the Trinity. There's two persons here. The word was with God. So are you telling me there's two gods? And no, and John is masterful in his language. He doesn't say, and God was with God because there is only one God. He says, the word was with God. Meaning there is a sense in which they are united and there is a sense in which they are uh, separate and relating to one another. And then, lest you think, okay, so the, the word is with God, but is he really God? Then he says, and the word was God. It's like, wait, so he's with God. So he's two, he's not two gods, but he was God. And, and at this point, literally, we begin to get to the incomprehensible. Uh, almost every commentary I read said, at this point in your sermon, stop, just stop. Don't explain it. You'll mess it up. You'll mess it up. Don't explain it. Just believe it. Um, so I'm going to do my best to do that. Um, but I'll, I'll stay within safe grounds in a couple areas. There's a thing called the Athanasian Creed, which is a creed of the doctrine, some of the most essential doctrines. And here's how it explains this verse. It says this, um, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. So, so there are two persons, separate persons. We don't confound them, but we don't divide their substance. Neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. Um, I'm just going to leave it there. I'm going to take the advice. There it is. Um, now, now, these are deep, deep truths in the first verse of the book of John. And I don't want us to miss like the, the forest for like, like the details of the tree. And so why does this matter for us that God, uh, that Jesus is God? Um, well, a couple of things. Number one, number one is this. Every other religion, every other religion and cult and even and even a handful of popular secular writers in our culture reject specifically this idea. Every religion, cult, and secular writers, like this idea is what, this is the heart of the rejection of Christianity right here, that Jesus is God. And uh, they've crafted all kinds of, you know, wise sounding arguments that you'll probably encounter, you've already encountered. Um, every, this is significant, every major historic heresy in the church is connected specifically to this idea that Jesus is God. Uh, Martin Luther has said, everything depends on this doctrine. It serves to maintain and support all other doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, I just want to bring up one idea for us. This is probably one of the most popular writers today that you may encounter. Uh, there's a man, an author out there, a brilliant, winsome man named Bart Ehrman. And he has dedicated his entire career to uh, attacking this idea. And, and he'll essentially tell you this. The idea that Jesus is God was an invention by the fourth century church. Church invented this idea. And the original followers of Jesus didn't believe that idea. We made this up. Jesus is God. He's like, the church made that up. The church needed a, you know, a savior. And, and so, you know, as time went by and he was the hero, they kind of just, essentially this whole mythology came around and he became God. And um, let me just let the word of God speak so clearly to that. Verse two, the word, or the end of verse one, the word was God. That's a, that's a first century idea black and white. Uh, look again to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, okay, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Wait, what? Did you catch that? Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Wait, you just said God is at the Father's side. I would expect, when I read the word God, I think they're talking about the Father, right? That's what we think. But he's saying God is at the Father's side. Verse 18, again, explicitly connects Jesus' divinity to his person. Jesus is God. And then one more I just want you to see. This whole book is packed with this idea. 
but I want you to see this. So we all remember doubting Thomas. God bless him. We would probably be the same way. You're telling me Jesus is alive. And he says so dramatically, unless I put my hand in the scars, I will not believe. And uh, so Jesus shows up to him the next day. And in John chapter 20, uh, verse, in fact, let me just read 26 because it's such a good story. Eight days later, so eight days go by, Thomas is like, I'm glad you all saw Jesus. This is cool. Uh, Here I am. Um, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And I wonder how he said it. Oh my gosh. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. All that to say, you can rest assured the church from day one knew Jesus was God. He was God. And together as we look through this book verse by verse, we will behold the glory of the Son who is God together. Uh, Two more practical ways I want to end. Why does this doctrine of the divinity of Jesus matter for us? Think of this, think of this. The worth of our Savior reveals the depths of our sin. Think about that. The worth of our Savior reveals the depth of our sin. It took God to come and bear the penalty for your and my sins on the cross. He couldn't just send an angel. He couldn't just send a good man. The Savior of the world had to be God. And that humbles us. That exposes the reaches and depth and magnitude of our sin. Uh, One pastor put it like this. If one no less than the eternal God, the creator and preserver of all things, if one no less than him could take away the sin of the world, sin must be a far more abominable thing in the sight of God than one supposes. Church, our sin is significant. It's eternal. You know, when we think about sin, often we can think, God, oh, it's not, we think about, it can't be fair for God to punish, you know, sin for eternity. And uh, we forget, we already get this concept. If, if I were to be walking down the road and I see a black widow, which I hate with all my heart, I just step on it and move on. You know, did I sin against that black widow? I don't know, maybe but it's kind of like, nah, we'll move on. Um, if, I, if I move along and I see a little cute kitten and I think, I hate cats, and I step on that cat, it's a little different, right? <laughs> like there's some people in here like, are you serious? <laughs> I don't want to get gruesome, but if I were walking along and there were a baby there, a human child, and I murdered the child, that gets some gravity to it. We get the concept that uh, the offense, uh, the significance of the offense corresponds with the worth of the one sinned against. We have sinned against an eternal, holy, perfect God. The only thing that would be just is an eternal punishment for one sin. And we have a life full of sin. And yet, we see in the book of John that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. As he would go to the cross and drink the cup of the wrath and punishment of God for the sins of the world. That whoever believes in him will not be condemned but will be forgiven and accepted and receive eternal life. The fact that Jesus is God shows us, oh man, our sin is so significant and our glorious savior and salvation is eternally magnificent. Thank you, God, 
for the cross. Um, I want to clear up really briefly, too. There's an objection to this idea of Jesus receiving our sin on the cross. And, and the idea is essentially, you know what? And this is an idea that's taught within the church. Uh, Westmont, it's, it's taught on that campus. It's this idea. The cross, penal substitutionary atonement, as theologians would call it, is divine child abuse. It's, the cross is disgusting. As if the father would force his innocent son to just suffer for other people. That's a disgusting idea. And um, I just want to say what a patronizing and blasphemous view of Jesus that is. He is no helpless child. He is God. He wasn't forced to do anything. And in fact, look at John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Our savior is God who has authority to give his life and pick it up again. And we see in verse 17, what motivates this? Is it some weird, cruel relationship between the father and the son? Nope, it's love. For this reason, the father loves me. See, the father and the son have, and the spirit have been together in this infinite love relationship. And that relationship of love overflowed in creation. We want to include others into this. And then we were given the freedom to rebel, and we did. And yet that love, again, overflowed as the son says, I will go and take the penalty they deserve, and I will die on the cross so that they can have life, and I can bring them, as we're going to read in John 16 and 17, 18, into the life of the Trinity, that they could be in me as I'm in the Father. And he brings us into the love of God. And so Jesus is a divine, a divine savior, no mere good man or example. He is God himself laying down his life for us. And then the last uh, thing that, this, that we're gonna focus on this morning briefly is because Jesus is God, he's not to be debated over, um, honestly argued over, divided over, he's to be worshiped. If there's one ultimate uh, implication of the fact that Jesus is God, is that you get on your knees and you worship him. Uh, I just think of like, imagine if we, if we get to go visit the queen of England, right? And we're like, okay, we're going to go visit her. And but there's been, you're going with your friend and you're like, well, what is her middle name? Is it this or is it this? And you're arguing the whole time and you're going in there and you're like, you see her and you're walking up and you're like just bickering. No, is it this? Is this? Who's going to ask? Who's going to, like how inappropriate to do anything other than just get on your knee and honor the queen. That is the ultimate posture that we, the church, have to have before Jesus, our God. We must fall at his feet in awe and surrender and adoration and worship. And I'm even going to just encourage you, um, when we do our second set of worship, uh, this is no like musical sing-along. This is time to be in the presence of God who is worthy of our worship. And, and as we know, the day is going to come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Yet the great privilege of the people of God is today we get to worship him now. He's given us his spirit. He walks amongst the lampstands. Our God is here with us, the people. And so as we have communion and prayer and carpets together, we will behold Jesus and sing songs that give glory to Jesus. And not just, we know this, worship isn't just second set on a Sunday morning. Um, when we leave, you are to worship 
Jesus. You are to daily abide in his presence. You are to obey him. You are to trust in his word and his promises. You are to repent of your sin to his people. And you are to sacrificially serve his body because he is God. He is God. He is worthy, church, of our worship. So I'm going to close us right now and, and ask that the Lord would prepare our hearts to worship our God. Jesus, you are the almighty Yahweh of the Bible. And we, Lord, are unworthy, rebellious people. And yet, Jesus, you became flesh and lived a perfect life as only God could live and would live. And on the cross, you took our sin and you made a way for us to enter into the, the holy of holies, the presence of God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you can do what only you can do and expose the glory and majesty of God to us, your people. Only you can make these words on a page what they really are, living and active and powerful to expose us to the glory of God. God, I thank you that you are so patient with us. Thank you, Jesus. Time and time again in this book, you are so patient. You're so patient with those disciples that you called early on. You're so patient with your mom in chapter two. You're patient with this teacher of the law in chapter three. You're patient with this sinful adulterer in chapter four. Chapter after chapter, page after page, we see the heart of God. Christ come for people like us. Thank you for your patience. Jesus, I'm also struck you, um, you're also God. And so uh, you confront sin and you confront religious hypocrisy head on. Think of chapter five and how you call out Bible people who miss you, who argue about verses and miss Jesus. Jesus, would you deal brutally with religious hypocrisy in our church? Jesus, would we be humbled and silenced by you where we are proud and harsh I think of how in chapter 6 you you are compassionately giving physical bread but then you say you, you don't even know how good I am I give you eternal life feast on me feast on me Jesus you satisfy you satisfy you created hunger so that it could point to one who would satisfy and that is you Jesus would you satisfy us this morning? We are looking all over, Lord, all kinds of sinful places for satisfaction. But you are the true bread and you alone satisfy. Would you satisfy us this morning and together as we study your word? Jesus, I think of how you said, if anyone's thirsty, come to me in chapter seven. I'll give you my spirit that will be a spring of constant living water in your soul. Jesus, I think of how you tell us in chapter eight that the truth will set you free. And if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Jesus, you bring freedom, real freedom. 
freedom is not uh, living apart from you in your word. That's slavery to sin. But you set us free. Jesus, I think about how you give sight to the blind. Jesus, I ask this morning you would give sight to those who are spiritually blind that you are God. You are king of kings. And that though they are sinners, you love them and died for them, that if they would trust in you, they would be born again. Open up blind eyes, Lord, and use us, your people, to go into our communities and the nations to offer the one who can open blind eyes, Jesus Nazareth. Think of how you're the good shepherd in chapter 10. You are our shepherd, our chief shepherd, the only one we look to, the one who teaches us the way, who leads us and guides us and protects us and disciplines us and is with us, prepares a way for us ultimately who laid his life down for us. Think of how you raised Lazarus in chapter 11. It's a picture of what you're going to do. You will return and we will rise again. We will be given new bodies, never again to suffer. Lord, I think of chapter 12 as Mary worships at your feet. Jesus, give us just a tiny slice of of what Mary knew. She would give her most expensive possessions and give up her reputation just to prostrate herself at your feet. Gosh, Jesus, would we not be just an entertaining church? Would we be a church that wants to get on our faces at the feet of Jesus? And I think of the end of the book of John where he says, if I could tell you all of who Jesus is and was and did, I suppose that the world wouldn't have enough space for the books that could be written. Jesus, you are infinitely more glorious than anything any of us has ever imagined. So reveal yourself to your people. Help us fall more in love with you, Jesus, and worship you more. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. church. Let's go hold him together right now.